gay parents, foster care, and death by machete or chimpanzee. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. Really excited to talk to all you new listeners who've come in from the recent featuring of the Liturgist podcast on NPR. I hope you enjoy this strange little spinoff show we have here. Um, I've run out of things to say. So professional. Whatever. Let's get it started. Oh, man. I love it when uh, I'm just getting the show started and I'm already giggling at myself. It's always a good sign. <laughs> I, I really should do the intro again, but I, I enjoy uh, just admitting I have nothing of value to say <laughs> for the rest of the uh, time that we have music that my friend Jeb wrote. Really funny. Okay, let's talk about events. That's always fun. You like to know where we can see each other today, the day this podcast comes out, March 20th. I'm in Athens, Georgia at uh, IRIS 2017. That's the Interdisciplinary Research and Ideas Symposium. So I'll be the hack podcaster among a bunch of actual academics, which I, I really genuinely enjoy. March 24th, I'll be at the Blue Conference in Fairfax, Virginia. And my portion of that incredible event will be to talk about the theological and faith implications of artificial intelligence. So if you weren't tempted before, I'm sure you are now. <laughs> March 29th, I'll be in Houston, Texas for the Christ and Creation event with BioLogos, the 2017 BioLogos conference. N.T. Wright's going to be there. Aaron Nequist is going to be there. Really, really stellar event. I'm totally excited about that one. I'm tempted to skip my own session, honestly, because uh, there's so many quality scientists and, and theologians and, and brilliant folks as part of that event. Uh, I've got some things that will be coming in April but aren't on the calendar yet, so keep an eye out. May 13th, I'll be at Christ Church in Greenwich, Connecticut. That'll be fun. So also, really big news, like, you know, like I had trumpets or something there. This is this is a big announcement. Tomorrow, tickets go on sale for the next Liturgist Gathering events. So we're doing Boston, October 6th and 7th, and Seattle, Washington, October 27th and 28th. And also in September, uh, we're going to be in Los Angeles, but we aren't actually announcing those dates or selling tickets yet. But tomorrow, March 21st, tickets do go on sale for Boston and Seattle. Now, we open ticket sales up early for uh, patrons for the liturgists, and uh, tickets are selling really well, even though they're not publicly available. Uh, I do expect both of these events to sell out. So if you're interested in going to the liturgist gathering, which is about us getting together. We'll do a live podcast. We will do spiritual practice together. We'll practice meditation and different Christian prayer techniques. Uh, we'll do some typical liturgist-style, mind-blowing conversations about things we've been thinking about. And I think the most important part of liturgist gathering is we all meet each other, not just you meet me and Michael and people who may have contributed to our work, but each other, the liturgists, the people who are the spiritually homeless and frustrated and trying to chart out what faith looks like in their lives today without all the judgment and dogma. So I'd uh, love to see you at the Liturgist Gathering. Now, one other thing, October 21st, I'm going to be in Dublin, Ireland for the Rubicon Conference. And while I'm in the Republic of Ireland and the United Kingdom, I would love to put together a little book tour. So if you have a spot that could host me in Scotland, Northern Ireland's covered, but if you, want, if you want to do the rest of Ireland, or if you want to hit up anywhere on the island of England, including London, uh, we're calling for events. This will be a very inexpensive way to get me to come to your church or 
college or venue or whatever you've got because I'm already going to be over there. The airfare is covered. So uh, if you're interested in being a part of the Finding God in the Waves tour that's happening in the Republic of Ireland, Northern Ireland, and the United Kingdom, I hope I said that right. I know before I called Ireland part of the United Kingdom and I'm an American, so I'm kind of dumb about that stuff. Uh, even looking at like a map on Wikipedia, I still messed it up. Uh, so I hope I'm trying to do better there. Thanks for your tweets and emails. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'd love to see you and have you tell me how to properly describe your homeland on the internet. So uh, just go to my website, uh, AskScienceMike.com, and there's a speaking button. Just click there. That'll take you to the folks at Chafee Management. Just fill out the little form on that website and tell them, hey, I'd like to host Mike in the UK or Northern Ireland, or the Republic of Ireland, or wherever in that geographic vicinity you are located. And uh, they'll give you more details on how that happens. Okay? Uh, Really excited about the show this week. Uh, More than usual. And you'll find out why when we get to the questions. So uh, let's do it. So for people who support Ask Science Mike on Patreon... They have this special ability to put questions right into the podcast without having to go through the normal voting process. And we have two questions like that this week. Um, (laughs) I want to apologize to my patrons. I offer you that benefit, but I don't tell you how to do that. So these are places I found in my email box or, or the inbox on Patreon where people have said, hey, I have questions for the show. So if you're a patron and you're at the right uh, tier, to have a question on the show, just use the message function on Patreon to send me a message, and I'll be sure I see those messages there. Some of these patron questions are a few months old, so my apologies. The first patron question this week is come, comes from Kate, uh, who says, Is this how you submit a question? I'm not sure. Anyway, love the podcast. I've started listening to the Liturgist podcast at your recommendation. It's beautiful. So, I want to know what makes a good radio voice. I listen to a lot of podcasts, and some people's voices are so engaging and smoothing, and others are just not. I am definitely one of those people, having been told after I needed vocal cord surgery that I have a percussive voice. So my question is, what about our anatomy and speech patterns make our speaking voices, not singing voices, appealing to others? Also, are there differences in what people prefer based on the gender of the speaker? That might be cultural, I guess. And how can you change your speaking voice if you want to improve it for recordings? Okay, this is a phenomenal question. My answer's not as neat as I would like because there's less research into this than I expected, but I did find several studies and they all seem to have little different ideas and little different pictures and and different questions they explored. So I'm going to try to knit those together into something useful and actionable. So one thing, Australian researchers tested the voices of commercial radio broadcasters against regular people and public radio broadcasters. And they did this by putting high-speed cameras in the mouths of people and having them talk so they could see the movement of vocal cords. And the difference they found in that experiment, which I can't imagine how it was done, even if you were using a fiber lead, I think it would be hard to talk with a fiber lead in your mouth normally. Um, But they found that the vocal cords of professional broadcasters consistently closed faster than they opened. And that was universal in all subjects. So for regular people and people who did public radio in Australia, they had a similar open and closing speed for their vocal cords, whereas professional broadcasters uh, had vocal cords that closed faster than they opened. They don't know what that means. (laughs) it's just what they found so we can't really use that to learn how to have a better voice but it is a difference we start to see in the data now when we've looked at pitch in relationship to voices many studies show that we generally find 
higher voices more attractive in women and lower voices more attractive in men. Uh, I've had kind of an opposite experience that you've had since about uh, late puberty, early adolescence. People have told me that I have a wonderful voice, probably deeply shapes how I speak. Honestly, think about the positive reinforcement when I move my voice deeper and deeper into my chest, right? That will kind of tease what we're going to talk about a little later in the answer. Uh, but so I have a low voice. Now, interestingly enough, we tend to favor voices that have a similar pronunciation to our own. So there is some basis here for a cultural context. People who pronounce vowels similarly to the way that we pronounce vowels tend to be voices we find more attractive or more interesting. Hmm. Now, that doesn't really explain why we tend to find foreign accents interesting. Uh, I can listen to Australian and British people speak all day or South Africans speak all day. Whatever, that's what the data says. Uh, now, in terms of voices we find authoritative or powerful, regardless of gender, we favor lower voices. Isn't that interesting? So in men, we're looking for a low voice for both attractiveness and authority. But women have difficulty being perceived as both attractive and authoritative at the same time. Now, I don't know how much of that is culturalized, uh, versus endemic to our sort of neurological responses to voices. But either way, don't we see a little bit of a foundation for sexism and patriarchy there in that data? Uh, so anyway, when, we, when we've done uh, experiments where we've pitch-shifted voices using computers, as we make voices lower, people report both genders as being more authoritative or powerful when the pitch goes down. If you would imagine uh, evolutionarily and anatomically speaking, we're talking about tones that we tend to associate with certain evolutionary signals like body size and reproductive suitability, right? Larger men, larger chested men are typically viewed as more attractive and that often correlates with a deeper voice. And in many ways, the inverse is true for women. Again, within reason. If a man's voice becomes low enough, it's hard to even hear. And if women's voices become very high, they hit a point of diminishing returns and the negative effects on perceived attractiveness. Now, in terms of authority, that lower pitch is associated with age and therefore wisdom. So that might make sense why even with uh, women, we look for a deeper pitched voice to denote power or authority. So that's some studies I've seen. When it comes to how to improve your voice for recordings first, your microphone technique is really important. So I uh, know a lot about my voice and how it works with microphones. So I tend to put microphones off to the side, the left side of my mouth, pointed at my mouth with about, uh, depending on the microphone, one to four finger distance from my mouth to the microphone. And that gives me a nice even tone. If I go low and point up, then you'll get more of a nasal tone, which is what I'm doing right now. And if instead I point down towards my mouth, it gets really, really boomy and you get more chest tone. And if I talk right into the microphone, it gets uh, overly present and less soothing, which is why I place the microphone just right off to the side. See what I did there? Um, now, I tend to talk very similarly into the microphone as I talk in person. Uh, I think my Ask Science Mic voice is a little more radio than my liturgist podcast voice or my stage voice or my in-person voice, but I think that's because I like trying to keep myself awake and engaged. I'm doing this for my benefit and not yours because I'm an extrovert standing alone in his office to record this show. Uh, so after you've got the right mic technique, which is incredibly important, in terms of uh, what you would do to practice the tone of your voice or improve the tone of your voice is the more you can breathe and speak from your diaphragm, uh, the better 
your voice will sound. So if I were to talk way up in my nose, my voice is a lot less present. And then if I move just into my mouth, I can't even do it. I don't use a head voice to speak. You want to make sure that you're almost treating your lungs like a a bagpipe, putting a lot of air in them and then using the diaphragm to slowly squeeze it out. By the way, watch this. I can talk for a really, really long time without taking a breath because I fill my lungs with so much air. See what I did there? That's because I'm talking from the diaphragm. Now, you're supposed to sing the same way. I don't sing with my diaphragm. I'm a terrible singer, but I I do love to hear myself talk. So Um, anyway, so you also want to be careful with enunciation. I'm not great at it. Um, But enunciation helps people appreciate your voice. But if you do it too crisply or too sharply, it can be staccato and people find it less pleasing. I think I sort of naturally aim for relaxation with the way I speak. So it depends on what you want to communicate, what tone you want to convey. And if you'd like to really unpack that, well, work with a voice coach or actually go to AskScienceMike.com and click on this episode, 107, And look at the show notes because I included an article written by a voice coach. Um, It's very intuitive for me. I have a lot of microphone experience. I have a lot of talking experience. So I think it's actually relatively difficult for me to unpack, you know, my approach. But I also don't have a very versatile voice. I have like how I'm talking now. And then I have like what I guess I would call like my meditation voice. Let's see if I can do it. Begin by closing your eyes, right? So a little more gravelly, a little softer. Um, But that's really all I can do. When people have told me I should do voiceover work in the past, I'd be like, that's great if they want my voice. But if they have notes on what I should do differently, uh, (laughs) I'm, I'm not an actual voice professional. I do all this stuff intuitively. Either way, fantastic question from a patron. Hey, Mike, I enjoy listening you speak into the, the challenges and the conflicts that, that so many people go through. But I often wonder, what, what are the topics and the ideas or, or the elements of theology that you are currently struggling with? Uh, and then secondarily, you know, sometimes you will talk about uh, giving yourself just a few minutes to do a limited amount of research about any, any given topic or question that somebody asks. And I would love to hear... You know, what's that quick process that you go through to seek and then find the answers and then compose that in a way that that's digestible and makes sense to the rest of us? All right. Thanks, man. Well, I always love the two for one questions. <laughs> People got to sneak in two questions and those neither of those are quick questions. So hats off to you for getting that one by both Andrew and the patrons, because uh, when I pick the show questions, Uh, I always pick the easiest ones, (laughs) which meant double questions almost never made it because it was more work for me. Um, I had zero, no intended uh, guilt there. It's actually funny to me. So I will honestly answer both of those. You'll hate my first answer. I don't struggle with any theology whatsoever. (laughs) This is the the thing about kind of the open-handed nihilist, you know, ecclesiastical vapor approach to faith. What is there for me to struggle with? I hold it all so loosely. Uh, I enjoy the search. I enjoy studying scripture and reading about theology, even theologies I find preposterous, uh, because I like to see what role that theology has played in the development of the church and the development of human civilization. So there's nothing to struggle with. I doubt things all the time, but that's not a struggle. Doubt's how I have fun. (laughs) If you think less theologically and more stuff that's I think about a lot uh, right now, um, what's the balance between calling out harm and inviting people to see the world more broadly? Every time you put your foot down, On a topic of injustice, some people walk away from the table. But if all you ever do is invite people, 
nothing gets done? What is the right balance on police brutality and racial injustice in social and economic contexts and climate change and all these pressing issues in our societies? How do I do the most good and the least harm? I think about that more than anything else. I've been wrestling with uh, if human nature and collective cognitive action is compatible with democracy or indeed with civilization for the long term. I wrestle with that. That's a struggle for me. Uh, What could we do to make the internet more healthy than harmful for human civilization? I wrestle with that one a lot. And then something I think about all the time, I can't tell you about because it's top secret. It's uh, research for my next book that I'm not ready to talk about yet. So the thing I'm thinking about the most, you'll probably start hearing about 18 months from now. Isn't that a bummer? Now, the second question you sent in my process for researching questions. Uh, I actually wrote out the answer to this question last after watching myself answer the other questions on this episode. And here's the process. I read or listen to the question that has been submitted. And then off the top of my head, I make a bulleted list of how I'd answer the question if it was a live show, right? Just three to five, sometimes eight or 10 uh, bullets. There's usually only three major bullets and then you have sub bullets off of that ideas supporting a point. Um, If that answer isn't enough, that means it's not going to be a quick research question. And that means it's got to go into the deep research pile, the stuff that sometimes I'll spend hours researching or occasionally on the show a day and a half, maybe two days researching the answer to a question. Those are pretty rare. There were none of those for this episode. Uh, So once I've written out that little outline, I check any facts or figures for accuracy against a source. Um, so anytime I'm quoting a number or an equation or a scientific fact, I look that up. Or if I couldn't recall it exactly, I go and get the exact figure off of the internet. Then I look for supporting documentation, research, studies, articles, uh, that people can, A, validate where I got my information and two, dig deeper. And uh, I'm really good at Google, so if the very first phrase that comes off my head doesn't give me what I want in the first three or five results, I amend it, and by usually the third search, I have the exact thing I was looking for. I'm really, uh, my Google foo is strong, okay? And uh, then if I'm thinking about like book length stuff, I literally have a bookshelf in my office that's just full of uh, the kind of nonfiction books I love to read. And I use my spatial memory. They're organized by uh, topic on each shelf. And I'll just scan the spines to see like which book uh, did I read that told me a lot about that topic. And then I include that book in the show notes if I didn't get what I was looking for in Google. And then I'll usually try to find some studies that push back on what I said. And then I just hit record after I have all that stuff. So like, for example, this entire uh, answer that I just read to you for both questions is only uh, seven bullet points. So because I've done so much stage work in my life, uh, and, and anyone who's seen Ask Science Mike live knows I really do come up with these answers off the top of my head. I've studied storytelling enough to try to create an accessible, topical answer off the top of my head the first try. Greg takes out the pauses and the ums, uh, but generally what you're hearing is pretty close to what I said the first time off the top of my head. That's just sort of, I guess, my gift. You know, when people say, well, why do you do this? You're not a scientist. You're not a pastor. You're not an expert. All those things are true. But I am a lifelong communicator and educator. And uh, I do think I'm, I, I'm actually gifted at it. And I work really hard at it. So I think the intersection of those things, as long as I stick to communicating and educating people on things I've done the work to study, 
then I'm helping. If I position myself as the actual expert or if I try to pass off my nasal gazing as, you know, credible academic information, then I would go off the rails. So I'm really careful to tell you when I've ventured off into my opinion and how I see the world and uh, when I speak about science or history or theology, I do my very best to be faithful to the good work of the people who came up with that stuff in the first place. Uh, Really good questions. Thank you. Okay, our next question is also a patron question, and it's, it's a great one. Mike, I am new to science, and I'm not sure if I am a confused atheist or a confused Christian. Okay, let me stop you right there. You've come to the right place. <laughs> this, this is the perfect podcast for you. Uh, I do know that I am a closet nonconformist in an evangelical community and family. My question is, why do humans exist? If you accept a version of creationism, God created humans. If he knows all things, he would have known how terrible we would be that we would turn our backs on God, and basically he would have to mass murder us several times to thin the herd. Why would he create us just to watch us suffer? If God had nothing to do with the creation of humans, and we are in fact a cosmic accident of good fortune, then why would anyone, including you, believe in that God? It seems to me that the God that had the power to create matter from nothing would have had enough power to direct its course. Therefore, we would be intentional creations, and we are back to the first point in why let us exist to begin with. I feel I am stuck between choosing a God that is a narcissistic jerk or no God at all. Well, Boy, I think a lot of people feel that way today. Uh, So you are not alone there. You're wrestling with the problem of evil. You're wrestling with the idea of theism versus atheism as a result of that dilemma. And boy, a lot of people have been there. Here is why you are wrestling with those things. You've grown as a person. So what once got you through the day doesn't anymore. This is a good thing. Your understanding of the world is growing. And so the metaphors that once helped you navigate reality don't fit anymore. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that the way you once believed in God was simplistic or inappropriate. What I'm saying is it no longer fits where you are. So let's celebrate that. When I had the same (laughs) discussion with Rob Bell that you're having now, and I said, I don't believe any of this stuff for very similar reasons. He said, you're here. Let's celebrate that. Well, you're here. You asked the question. Let's celebrate that. Now, I love evangelicalism. I love who it made me. I love the personal God it presents. I even love the focus on doing the work of Christ to remake the world. But some of the theist associations with evangelicalism and indeed with the broader church, uh, they raise issues that are are hard to answer. And uh, when I see theologians try to do so, Uh, It's often somewhat appalling. (laughs) So I'm going to tell you my take, which may or may not help you along. This is one of many possible views. I think when we wrestle with this very involved or very distant or non-existent God, we make God too much like us. We're viewing God anthropomorphically. Promorphically, anthropomorphically. If you've listened to the show, you know me and pronunciation aren't friends. You're you're making God of a person with like awareness and intent, agency, emotions, a rational consideration of cause and effect. That's a very reasonable thing to do because you're human. If we put a face on something, 
we imagine it has a perspective like our own that's the root of empathy. We view animal behavior through a human lens. Why wouldn't we view the divine as though it were a mirror? But where I am today, theologically, I'm actually much more with Spong or Spinoza, even Einstein. I don't understand God to be a being, but to be being itself. I love the phrase, the ground of being, or the source of all. Such a God is the animating isness of everything. So every particle interaction, every sunrise, every moment of beauty emanates from God, as does every death and every lung cancer. Isn't that a, a fascinating, troubling view of God? Now what's interesting about me is uh, that is both true and a little bit of bullshit because I absolutely experience a more personal God through contemplative mysticism. My time and presence with God in meditation very often denotes a personal relationship, a God that loves me, a God whom I love. How do I resolve that? Oh, that's easy. I don't. I don't use theology, at least cataphatic, rational theology, to analyze and box in the divine. Is it possible that what I experience as God is simply my brain responding to reality in a particular way? Sure it is. Totally possible, even likely. And it doesn't bother me a bit. It doesn't diminish the miracle or the beauty. Is it more likely that uh, Jesus was crucified and stayed in the ground or that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, it is way more likely that Jesus stayed in the ground or that his body was removed from the tomb. But mystically, by loving God, I encounter a risen Christ. So I sit with that, but I don't master that. And I understand this is a very strange place to be. Most people are deeply uncomfortable with it because we're addicted to certainty. And frankly, since the Enlightenment, we have all lived and camped out in our left brain and told the holistic view of reality our right hemisphere offers to hit the road, Jack, or Jill, or gender nonconforming person. I would encourage you to read a book like uh, Why Christianity Must Change or Die by John Shelby Spong. Maybe check out Finding God in the Waves by that guy, Mike McCarg. Um, but understand there are more options than the evangelical God and atheism. But hey, if atheism gets you to a life of beauty and peace and helping others, well, atheism's just fine. If the practice of faith matters to you, if the presence of God in your life is important, but you just can't go along with evangelical theology, hey, that's okay. What matters where you'll find the gospel is in doing the work to help heal the world. In being a good neighbor, yes, but also in loving God. But as we see God in the Bible, there are so many ways of understanding God across the biblical narrative. Do you think Jesus' 12 disciples all understood him the same way or viewed God in the same way? I believe deeply that we are given whatever word, image, relationship to the divine we must have in order to serve the world if we're open to it. And they all point to the same great and beautiful mystery, that ground of being, and that source of all. Hey, Science Mike. I'm Katie from Dallas, Texas. You are going to be so happy. I have an actual science question for you. And this has been a long-standing debate within my family, so I think we will all be very excited to hear what you have to say, though many of us may not believe you. 
Would you rather fight to the death against an unarmed chimpanzee or a human male who is armed with a machete? When we get together and sit down for Thanksgiving dinner, we don't fight about politics most of the time. We fight about this question, and it gets heated. People have very strong opinions. It's kind of fun, to be honest. But I'm excited to hear your take on it and to have an actual educated argument next Thanksgiving when we sit down and inevitably begin discussing how we would rather die. Thanks, Science Mike. I was amazed when this question got the most votes of any recorded question on this week's show. (laughs) The patrons really wanted to see this question go on the air. And frankly, with the gravity of questions we get on the show so often, it is a refreshing question. (laughs) Now, it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I suppose it's a science question. Um, it's not a faith question, um, not really a life question, not not, definitely not advice. So of the categories I put the questions into, this would technically be a science question, but I don't have any studies or peer-reviewed data to offer you. There's some variables here. It depends on the chimpanzee. It depends on the man. Uh, for example, a Navy SEAL with a machete is a completely different thing than, uh, you know, one of my computer programming friends with a machete. And the chimpanzee, is it a wild chimpanzee? Has it encountered humans before? And in what context? Has it been taught to fear people? Has it been abused by people? How are you going to get a chimpanzee to understand that it's in a fight to the death in the first place? Um, So let's start with the obvious. I would not stand a chance against any competent human with a machete or a chimpanzee. Uh, I got in one fight in my life. My adversary was seated and I swung and my aim was off. So I like just glanced off his shoulder with my incredible punch and missed his face And the cafeteria full of students laughed at me, and that was the end of the fight. So who would I rather fight? Nobody. Um, If talking my way out is an option, I don't know. I could take the chimpanzee and and, uh, show non-aggression and submission and hopefully have it lose interest. If we're trapped in a cage, that's going to be a problem. If it's a human, hopefully appeal to its sense of empathy. Obviously, chimpanzees are much faster and much stronger than humans, but the fossil record is really clear that once humans have sharpened weapons, we're incredibly dangerous animals. We wiped out not only prey species, but decimated large predator populations as soon as we learned to sharpen sticks and throw them. You know, both both are mortal adversaries. You know, it I'd probably fight the person assuming the human is intent on trying to kill me. Here's why. It would be unethical to kill a chimpanzee just to prove I could. Chimpanzees lack the capacity to make a choice to enter the situation in the first place. Chimps can't offer consent. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's just cruel animal abuse, assuming I survive, which I'm not likely to. Uh, I, I don't think, I can't think of many situations where a human would be able to kill a chimpanzee with its bare hands. Um, now if both I and the other person were forced into the situation, meaning there was an option, there was no option to walk away. It was like, if you don't, one of you doesn't kill one of the other, then we're going to kill both of you. If it was that situation, uh, then I would volunteer to be killed and I would ask for a clean slice of my carotid artery uh, because I think with a blade weapon, um, it could be difficult to get between the vertebrae of my neck uh, and very unlikely someone could cleanly hack my head off. But uh, if someone sliced my carotid, I'd die pretty fast with relatively literal suffering. <laughs> and that is not the answer you're looking for, but that is my answer. It's unethical to kill a chimpanzee. And uh, I'd lose in a fight to either one. Uh, 
So it's kind of a moot point. Our next question uh, came in via email, and it reads, Hi, Mike. Let me start by saying your show blesses me regularly. I found the liturgist last year and binge listened to that podcast and am now binge listening to Ask Science Mike. I'm only about halfway through the available episodes, so forgive me if you've already answered this kind of question. I very recently began a deconstruction of my faith. Like you, I grew up in a very conservative evangelical home. You hear this a lot, don't you? And thus was raised to believe that LGBTQ lifestyles are sinful. For many years, that idea didn't feel right to me, but I always pushed away my questions about it uh, for the comfort of knowing firmly what it is that I believe. Well, that idea has since fallen apart, and so I'm just now openly exploring LGBTQ issues and questions. A large part of the anti-LGBTQ rhetoric in conservative circles is that their relationships are not as successful as traditional straight relationships in terms of divorce rates specifically, and that their family lives are not as stable. Uh, Some of the language might include the idea that this is imperative that a child have both a mom and a dad, so God forbid a child grow up with either two moms or two dads. Is there any data to back any of that up? Now that I'm growing and learning rather than pushing away my feelings of doubt, I question these kinds of things when I hear them. Is it all just propaganda as I suspect, or is there something to it? Thanks for everything you do. Seriously, I know you get a lot of thank yous. I hope you can feel through the interwebs how sincere this one is. Signed, Misty. Well, Misty, I get a lot of thank yous, and I feel the sincerity in all of them. I don't think a lot of people uh, flippantly tell me thank you for my work, and I appreciate it every time. So thank you for thanking me. Okay, a couple of issues. One, same-sex marriages have not been legal in America very long. So, uh, I think everyone should have the intellectual humility to admit we are studying a relatively new phenomenon. So, it's a little bit of a red herring to uh, compare divorce rates among uh, same-sex couples and different sex couples. We're not really comparing apples to apples to begin with. We've only recently allowed... Uh, this to happen at a national level. Now, when I have seen studies that compare those rates, though, I don't see uh, support to say that same-sex marriages fail more often. And when you include uh, cohabitating couples, which is obviously more common in uh, same-sex relationships for legal reasons until very recently, um, I've seen some studies that actually say they're more successful. And if we want to go by success rate, as the operative for what marriages should be uh, entered into, then we would say most people should move to the Northeast and become atheists before getting married because those are the longest-lasting marriages. You could make an argument from the data that Christian marriages are not as successful as secular marriages and therefore are a bad idea, right? So you have to be careful uh, <laughs> use those kind of metrics to define your work. Uh, now, when we get to children, uh, the science is actually pretty unambiguous. There's no harm done to children when they're raised by same-sex parents in similar circumstances, meaning a stable couple with similar economic means. Those are big qualifiers. Same-sex couples tend to be wealthier than heterosexual couples. So <laughs> on average, some studies show that uh, the children of same-sex couples are a little bit better off. Now, some studies actually do show elevated risks for children in same-sex couples versus heterosexual marriages, but that's because they don't differentiate between stable, monogamous same-sex couples, where the child's been in the same household their entire time, and marriages where a heterosexual couple ended in divorce because one of the partners came out and then remarried. Well, we know that divorce can have detrimental effects on children. And these studies have failed to mitigate for or account for those effects in their research. But when studies are done that don't have deep methodological flaws, again, 
No, there is no data, no, certainly no consensus to support the idea that children raised in same-sex homes are any worse off. Again, based on some studies, you would make an argument that a children was better off in a same-sex home and much better off with two atheist parents than they are in a Christian home. And that's the data. So I appreciate your question. It's a great question. Um, as you're growing in awareness of what it means to walk alongside LGBTQ people, um, understand that they don't view themselves as issues. They don't view the way they live their lives as the gay lifestyle or the lesbian lifestyle. They just view it as their lives. And don't hear, don't hear me wrong, I'm in no way pushing back against your question. I honor your question. I am thankful for your question. But as you seem to care for your fellow humans, that's one thing I've learned, that when we talk about the issues that LGBTQ people face as a result of discrimination, uh, I try to avoid saying, you know, LGBTQ issues or LGBTQ lifestyle because those are terms foisted on those communities by religious fundamentalists, and why let the oppressor control the language, right? I think it's uh, the least we can do for oppressing and marginalizing these people for generations is to use the language for them that they prefer to use for themselves. Really great question. I hope my answer was helpful, and I have included a link in the show notes this week to 74, yes, 74 studies that will support my answer that may be handy uh, to have available when having these discussions with your more conservative friends and family. Our last question came in via email. Hi, Science Mike. Thanks so much for the work you do. I am a case manager for a foster care agency. I've been working there for about a year now. As I've gotten to know the system and seen a lot of very sad things, I've begun to wonder, is this even a good idea, taking children away from their parents? The children that I interact with often seem to be just as traumatized by their entry into and movement through the foster care system as by anything that their parents did or did not do. So I guess my question for you is this. Have there been studies that show that children are better off when they are taken from their homes than if they were left there? Is that even something you would be able to measure? I would love to hear any insight you have because I am feeling hopeless and questioning whether any of this work is even making positive change. Thank you. Your question was by far the most voted for question this week uh, by the patrons. Uh, this was an, uh, a far favorite, far favorite uh, about the other questions, which makes me sad because the question is just too important uh, for me to answer <laughs> and way out of my league. This is not false humility. You've asked me about work you are doing that matters in the world, and you deserve a better answer than I can give. So... I spent some time digging and digging and digging and digging and digging. And uh, boy, the research I found and the materials I found were not encouraging. Foster care uh, seems to be full of um, abuse and exploitation. And even when it's not, it still seems to cause harm to children. Now, does it cause more harm to children than their parents beating them with a baseball bat every day? Does it cause more harm to children than a parent who is consistently verbally abusive or simply negligent, who never pays attention to the child and uh, feeds them so infrequently that they are malnourished? I don't have the qualifications to make those determinations on a blanket level or on a case-by-case basis. So I, I have to start disclosing that. Now, foster care uh, came out of noble pursuits 
the horror of orphanages in the 1800s led to the implementation of the U.S. foster care system. It was an attempt to make things better for children facing displacement. But even among social scientists I read and child psychologists, I couldn't find a consensus on the best approach or the best alternative to foster care or what constitutes an appropriate threshold for removing a child from parental care. I I couldn't find it. I tried. (laughs) I really, really tried. Um, So this week, uh, for people who want to dig deeper, I do include a link to a beautiful essay that explores the issue more deeply from someone who was a well-meaning foster parent. It's It's a beautiful piece. And here's what I'm going to do because I want to honor the question. If you have experience, credentials, education, or qualifications in this question, I'd love for you to come to the show notes of episode 107 on AskScienceMike.com and weigh in on the comments. And if we get enough comments that are quality comments that hopefully also include citations to support uh, any foster care alternatives or good venues for advocacy, I will cover those on a future episode. Um, But what I don't want to do is give my useless opinion on such an important topic. Now, for you who feel hopeless and questioning whether this work is making positive change, mm, I can't answer that for you. I can say that a foster care system full of people who want to make a positive difference is probably better than one full of people phoning it in or doing it for personal gain. Uh, So your sense of empathy, your sense of hopelessness may be a necessary catalyst in the future for reform, for revitalization, and ultimately a better hope for children. Well, gosh, this is a long studio episode of Ask Science Mike. Uh, but there were six questions, so that's why we had a little extra time together. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to my patrons for making the show financially possible, for picking the questions that come on to the program. Thank you, Andrew Galucky, for uh, not only picking the questions every week, but putting together our Together groups. If you'd like to connect with other Ask Science Mike listeners in your local area just go to askscienceMike.com and click the together button you'll find it to the right of the episode show notes um thanks greg nordine for uh producing the show and sound designing the show and everything you do and jeb my man thanks for that theme song i love to hear it every week everybody it's been good to talk with you and i can't wait to talk with you next week 